Okay. Hi, everybody. Um, my name is Harry Pettit. I'm a visiting fellow at the uh, LSE Middle East Centre and also a fellow in urban geography at the University of Reading. Um, and it's a pleasure to welcome you today to uh, the seminar where we have invited Yazid Sayyid to come and speak on Praetorian Spearhead, the role of the military in the evolution of Egypt's state capitalism. 3.0. So I'm just going to begin by setting out a few ground rules for, for how it's going to work and then pass over to Yazid. So basically Yazid is going to present for around 15 minutes and that's going to kind of leave open the rest of the time for a Q&A discussion. Um, if you would like to ask a question and I can see someone's already um, asked how that will work, so please type your question if you can into the Q&A box at the bottom of your screen and not the chat box and we'll then kind of work through the questions as they arise to the to the speaker um so please note that this event is going to be recorded and also is going to be live streamed on facebook and if you'd like to tweet about the event you can use the hashtag lse egypt so it's a great pleasure to welcome yazid sayer uh, who is a senior fellow at the malcolm h Kerr carnegie middle east center in beirut where he leads the program on civil military relations in Arab states. His work focuses on the comparative political and economic roles of Arab armed forces and non-state actors, the impact of war on states and societies, the politics of post-conflict reconstruction and security sector transformation in Arab transitions, as well as authoritarian resurgence. And he is author most recently of Owners of the Republic and Anatomy of Egypt's Military Economy, and he's going to be presenting today on a recent LSE Middle East Center report on the role of the military in the evolution of Egypt state capitalism 3.0. So I'll pass over to Yazid and then we'll take questions. Thanks, Harry, for the introduction. And I'm very grateful to the LSE Middle East Center for publishing my paper uh, and then for hosting this uh, panel um, or webinar. Um, I'll jump straight in. Uh, what, of course, the, the immediate question is what distinguishes state capitalism under President Sisi in Egypt from the previous versions, the one originally created by President Jamal Abdel Nasser, um, mainly from 1961 onwards, the so-called Arab socialism phase, uh, but then version 2.0, uh, which took place under President Hosni Mubarak, especially after 1991 and the privatization program of a large part of the state-owned business sector. So in my view, there are three key differences that set state capitalism 3.0 apart from its predecessors. Um, first, of course, is the matter of economic strategy and the sectors uh, on which the state now focuses, the economic sectors on which the state focuses. Second is the particular role of the military as a spearhead of Sisi's economic strategy. And third is the shift in social alliances and constituencies that really sets Sisi's administration apart from his predecessors and of course, above all, from Abdel Nasser uh, who originally created state capitalism in Egypt. Um, I'll say a little bit about each of these three main uh, areas or distinguishing areas. Uh, of course, there's a lot more detail that's in the paper itself. 
and I'm very happy to go into uh, some of the detail during discussion. So you'll understand that now I want to be you know, sort of brutally brief. Um, first, in terms of the economic strategies, such as it is, and the economic sectors in which we can uh, map the nature, the evolving nature of state capitalism in Egypt, um, I've identified what I see as five areas where this is most obvious. Three of these areas, real estate development, uh, the development of infrastructure, industrial hubs, and thirdly, extractive sectors. These three were already developed under Mubarak in particular, um, so they're not entirely new, but what is interesting is how they're evolving and how the Egyptian state and the CC administration are approaching these three areas um, somewhat differently in ways that do more than simply reproduce the Mubarak model, but actually start to revise it. And then I'll add to that two more areas, um, uh, economic sectors or areas where we can track what's going on with the, the evolving state capitalism uh, in Egypt. And one of those is the shift in relationships with the private sector. And then finally, um, the manner in which what Sisi is doing, in my view, is to a large degree is to capitalize the public sector, capitalize state projects and uh, schemes designed by the state according to the state's logic, but then to attract or inject private capital into these schemes to help them uh, get financed. And that is, I think, uh, being done in a way that's very different to certainly Nasser's uh, version of state capitalism, but also to Mubarak's, very much so. Um, I'll touch briefly on each of these five. Um, first, going to real estate. Um, real estate speculation in Egypt grew enormously under Mubarak. Uh, it was one of the areas of crony capitalism, crony state capitalism that evolved, especially from around 2000 onwards with changes in, in, in the legal framework that allowed award and allocation of land in, in, in speculative ways and also to favor cronies and so on. Um, now, cronyism and corruption still take place in Egypt, but the big difference is that the state is now the major investor in real estate development, in, if you like, transforming land, of which Egypt has a lot of empty land, a lot of so-called desert land, transforming land into real estate. In other words, giving it a commercial value. And so the state is now the major partner and the major investor in creating real estate and uses it in a sense as the driving engine of the economy to a very large degree, sort of in a way, in the way that Abdel Nasser used the investment in heavy industry starting in the late 1950s and onwards as the engine for economic growth in Egypt. So really in a way we've got we've got another uh, you know, driving engine of, 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 of uh, state revenue and of investment and of the economy in the view of the CC administration. Uh, it's just not industry anymore, it's real estate. And that of course brings with it a whole host of market assumptions, market behaviors, but also social uh, and political alliances in terms of who's the audience, who's the constituency for this kind of a strategy. Um, Second, the massive investment in infrastructure uh, and uh, especially transport infrastructure, but also in industrial hubs 
and associated infrastructure, most noticeably along the Suez Canal, uh, starting from Port Said in the north and all the way down to Ain al-Sukhna uh, on the Red Sea coast in particular. And there's a lot of very sensible, obvious logic behind this. Uh, this is an area of global shipping. Uh, Egypt sits, in addition to sitting astride the Suez Canal, of course, sits astride a major uh, you know, uh, route for global trade and shipping and therefore can offer services, maintenance, repair for shipping and create a whole industrial zone around the Suez Canal that benefits from the logistics of the, the location. There's no doubt that this is you know, a, a, an obviously sensible strategy. Um, but there are problems with it. I, I won't go into the problems just yet. What I want to emphasize though is one thing here, which is I've tried to analyze official data on investment in infrastructure construction and in housing construction. Now, if you take the global figure, there has been a massive increase. Prime Minister Madbouli recently said that a total of 5.8 trillion Egyptian pounds have been spent since 2014 on so-called national projects. Uh, some of them tiny ones, but many of them are really major projects such as the new administrative capital east of Cairo, which alone is expected to cost $58 billion in its first phase. Um, the point I want to make here, though, is that when you parse the data given by various officials over the past two or three years, you'll see that investment in infrastructure in Egyptian pounds, because taking it in dollar terms is a bit problematic, but if you, either way, you, the, the Egyptian pound figure has inflated a lot in terms of dollar figures, of course, the numbers are more constant um, because of the exchange rate fluctuations in Egypt. But, but the key point is that Overall, average spending on infrastructure under CC has not massively increased compared to the Mubarak period. What has increased massively is investment in housing. And that's where there's been a really massive increase in spending compared to earlier uh, presidencies. And I'm going to come back to that later as to what this means because Egypt has a massive housing shortage. There's clearly a huge need for housing. The biggest need, of course, is for low-income groups and for those in poverty. Uh, however, most of the housing that's being built doesn't target this sector. It targets middle class and often the sort of middle and upper middle class, as I'll, I'll touch on later. So there, there are already um, interesting things that start to come out when, once you look into, this, into the data. Third is the extractive activities. Uh, things like uh, natural resources, water, gas, oil, uh, gold, heavy metals, phosphates. These are areas that Egypt has plentiful supply of, um, that, that Egypt uh, normally exports, in some, in some cases in significant quantities, such as phosphates or uh, chemicals and fertilizers drawn from the phosphate sector. Um, there has been a, a lot of emphasis on increasing the value added here from exporting, let's say, raw marble or granite to finishing and processing some of these natural products so that the, the sale value, the export value is higher. Um, and, but here again, there's, there's been a lot of emphasis on magnifying total output to the extent that some of the schemes, uh, according to official uh, claims at least, some of the schemes uh, that are mostly managed by the military, as it happens, 
a promise to exceed Egypt's total production up to date in those same sectors, marble, for instance, and granite uh, and others. Uh, cement production by the military has jumped to about a quarter of the total from almost zero a decade ago. So extractive and related uh, industry is an area where the, the state has invested uh, quite a lot of effort. Um, now, in terms of relations with the private sector, um, in, in my reading, there are several salient points here. One is that the CC administration has kept the old business cronies of the Mubarak era at arm's length. These people have, in some cases, been allowed to come back to Egypt, maybe to resume business, such as Ahmed Aziz in steel, but there hasn't been uh, a rebuilding of that alliance, that class alliance. And uh, other independent big businessmen, uh, Mansour, Suedi, the Sabiris family, etc., haven't really seen their political fortunes or influence increase. They haven't become the new allies of the regime. So one thing that's very interesting here is that the CC administration has, in various ways, through various means and for mixed reasons, um, sought new, somewhat lesser known businessmen as their favored uh, partners for many of the projects they run. Now, this is at one level so in terms of who, who the regime or the, the administration seeks in terms of social and business alliances. But what's also very noticeable is that the state has ended up largely through the military, as I'll come back to in a few moments, um, has ended up uh, starting to crowd the private sector in sectors that were overwhelmingly the domain of the private sector until very recently. So despite claims about military predominance in the economy and the massive share of the military, most of which I think remain inaccurate and wrong, um, what is noticeable, however, is that uh, areas such as construction and uh, production of cement and steel uh, and others where the private sector dominated, we're talking here well over 90%, 95%, even higher. Um, these are sectors where the state through the military has actually acquired very significant market share. And this is coming at the expense of forcing prices down for private sector companies, foreign and Egyptian, public and private, some of which have had to go out of business. And what's interesting here is that in some cases, the military has ended up as both the, large, the largest buyer as well as largest seller of certain select strategic commodities. Um, and the private sector continues to face crowding in terms of access to credit. One of the consequences of this is that the private sector today accounts for a percentage of capital investment as a percentage of GDP, of gross domestic, gross domestic product, that is less than it was under Abdel Nasser's socialist era of the 1960s. That, that's quite a paradox. And that tells you something about how the private sector in Egypt views its chances of investing and then being allowed to grow and diversify. Um, the final thing I want to touch on here in this uh, section of my, my presentation is the manner in which the CC administration seeks to capitalize state ventures through private sector involvement or, or investment. And it makes sense, of course, to seek public-private partnerships, to seek investors, whether foreign or domestic private Egyptian entrepreneurs, 
that that's totally logical. But my reading of this again is that in many cases, the administration tries to retain overriding control, certainly in setting policy, of course, and tax rates and customs policies, et cetera. These, this is not something that is genuinely negotiated with the private sector in any, in any case. But also that in terms of how the capitalization process happens, we, we have many instances in which the president will say, we've just invested 600 billion Egyptian pounds in developing Sinai. There are huge opportunities for the private sector. It's very disappointing that the private sector hasn't jumped on board and invested. Of course, the fact is that it's the state that's setting its targets, its goals, prioritizing without consultant consultation with the private sector, and then holds the private sector responsible for not investing. So, you know, the, the, the atmospherics aren't, aren't really conducive. Um, and what's also interesting, and this touches a little bit on the military again, is that CC seeks to use the newly created sovereign wealth fund that was created in late 2018 as a means for offering opportunities for private investors to gain a stake or a share in various state-owned assets, companies, real estate, and so on, ostensibly with the possibility of acquiring a 100% share of these assets, although so far there have been no instances of that happening, which suggests that in many cases what we may find is a repeat of the privatization experience post-1991, where a significant number of state-owned companies were in fact fully privatized, but a significant number were only partially privatized. And these continued to operate under the old logic of state-owned companies with a lot of inefficiency, a lot of debt, uh, poor output, poor, poor performance. Uh, but because the state controlled uh, ultimately these companies still, then the sovereign wealth fund could end up playing the same role where it allows the state to, to remain in a controlling position while offering what seems to be an attractive opportunity for private investors. And the key here is the knowledge of these private investors that they're not really investing necessarily in a highly productive asset so much as investing in an asset that they know has the political support of the government and of the president, and therefore will not be allowed to lose. Um, I need to move on since I realize I'm taking a little bit more time than I had intended. Um, and I'll just skip through, I mean, run through uh, the two other remaining uh, key distinguishing features of this version of state capitalism. One is that the military um, has finally emerged as a really major economic player, not so much in the strict sense of total ownership of assets or share of production of goods and services, although that has increased, um, but mainly in the lead role the military play in uh, construction of infrastructure and housing, uh, and increasingly uh, where military figures are now sitting on boards such as the IT Digitization Development Board uh, and then the Industrial Development Board and so on, um, where they have become uh, part of the various uh, boards that at least consult about where this, these sectors should be going in future. And that means that the military are finally starting to shift into a position where they have a formal role alongside government agencies, and in some cases, potentially the private sector in setting policy. 
uh, at least for particular sectors or at least setting, presenting recommendations. Um, the third thing and final thing I want to say here is that in one of the sharpest contracts with the Nasser era is that state capitalism 3.0 is no longer about redistribution of wealth and it is not about the transformation of social relations. Unlike Nasser, who created a much larger landowning peasant class, uh, shifted capital from the landowning elite in rural areas to the urban bourgeoisie and capitalists, and eventually from their hands into the state's hands, um, and created a large working class and a large middle class based on employment in the state sector. Uh, what Sisi is doing is, in fact, uh, presiding over a net transfer through the state and through state investment in real estate and in creating luxury so-called smart cities around the country, uh, catering to the aspiration and ambition of an upper middle class that can afford very expensive apartments in these gated compounds and beachfront, palm front, uh, artificial beachfront uh, cities, etc. Um, these these are the new. This is the new social and sociopolitical constituency of this administration. What this means is that the core constituency of every Egyptian presidency since Abdel Nasser, which was the public sector-based middle class, is finally being abandoned. These are the people who've seen their purchasing power shrink, uh, who've seen their living standards decline, who are starting to join the ranks of the poor or vulnerable, um, and who in other Arab countries, this is the same constituency that's losing out as the public sector wages bill as a share of GDP is shrunk. Um, and these, these, this is the sector that in Algeria and in Sudan, for instance, in 2019, moved against incumbent presidents. So what, ha what is happening in Egypt is happening across the region, um, but I think is one of the most striking and important shifts in this form of state capitalism, because state capitalism, it remains. I'll stop there and hope to uh, answer questions and also to take challenges and comments from everyone taking part in this. Um, thanks very much, Izzy. That was really fascinating. Um, uh, we have a few questions coming in. I'm going to use uh, Chair's privilege to just um, kick off with a couple of my own challenges, and then we'll we'll start working through the questions. But um, yeah, definitely stimulated a lot of um, lot of thought in me as well, and thank you very much for that. And I think it's really important that we try to kind of think about now. Yeah, Cece's been in charge for what is it seven years or so? Um, that we start to think about yeah how he's kind of or how that administration is changing the economy and kind of moving it on from the from the Mubarak era. Um, I wanted to just ask you a little bit more if you could um, if you could develop. Uh, an argument around kind of hegemony and consent and kind of how, what the kind of vision might be of the CC administration to kind of, you know, if they're, if you say they're abandoning the kind of lower middle classes that were, um, that were kind of stalwart of the kind of Nasserist era and, and into the Sadat era as well. And, and if that's kind of a final abandonment, is there any sense of like, how how the kind of consent might be one of that kind of large cohort cohort or is it just kind of ignoring them i mean i i've yes i've done research among this cohort very grounded research and i do think there's some sense that the kind of aspiration aspirational consumption afforded to the upper middle classes is something that they 
kind of aspire after as well, right? But kind of quickly realize that it's impossible for them to reach. So I was just wondering if you if you think there's any kind of attempt from from CC and the administration to kind of win the consent of that cohort. Thanks, Harry. I'll I'll take that question straight away. I, I'm looking at the questions coming in in the Q and A. Uh, box and the chat box. Um, so I'm going to try and group if possible and, and I'll tackle yours first. Um, I mean, it's an excellent question. And I think in terms of well, hegemony, um, one of the striking features of this administration is that it, I think, is very actively seeking hegemony over public space and public discourse through multiple means. Uh, among which are a highly nationalist discourse. And that's where, of course, the military fits again. The acquisition of uh, a large number of private media companies, both production and broadcasting by general intelligence or military intelligence and other state associated bodies to ensure that they have complete control over this domain. Uh, partly for, I think, originally for commercial, you know, there, there's a commercial reasoning behind this, but also because it's very much about controlling the space. Um, and then there's there's other very striking uh, developments, such as the sort of the new model administrator program of developing youth leaders and putting them through uh, specialized administration courses to produce the new managers and administrators of, of a new Egypt. And of course, all this is happening in a climate of complete clampdown on political freedom. And therefore, you know, the idea of creating uh, these sort of model administrators and model managers in the absence of uh, a vibrant, open, participatory uh, political arena is, is troubling to say the least. Um, now there's a flip side to this in my view. Uh, obviously this is something we could discuss uh, at great length. I'm not in a position to say whether, to what extent there is growing discontent among the middle-class sectors that are losing out as a result of all this. Um, I mean, after all, whether, wherever we look around the world, there, these kinds of policies have led to discontent among middle classes that were dependent directly or indirectly on state funding. Um, and that, for instance, in Turkey, starting in the 1980s and onwards, led to the rise of the AKP party, which won its votes from this particular constituency, among others. So that, that's hardly unusual, but I'm not in a measure to gauge it. I'm not in a position to gauge it. The, but what I do want to say, though, is that what's one of the things that's striking about Sisi and his whole style of political management is that having launched a lot of bold initiatives and an accompanying discourse about, uh, you know, this total commitment to business, working around the clock, bold initiatives across the board in every sector, addressing small and medium businesses, investing more here, offering the poor, new housing, all these different ideas. The sensible strategy would have been to create the, uh, to, to revive a political arena so that these different social groups could actually become part of the system uh, as, as participants, as actors, and not simply as recipients of priorities and strategies and favors bestowed by, you know, the benevolent and enlightened uh, despotic ruler. And what, what Egypt suffers from, and I think this is probably the single biggest threat to its future stability in my view, and to any kind of peaceful transition, is that 
this administration has succeeded in eliminating all political and social counterparts, not simply the opposition, but people who could have been allies and with whom it could negotiate transition, maybe handing back more role and more control and authority to civilian government. The sort of thing that happened in Chile in the 1980s or in Brazil in the 1970s, uh, when the military decided for its own reasons to hand over power or at least partially hand over power, or in the case of Chile, where big business and the right-wing political parties that were allies of the military regime decided that they wanted to take more direct control over governing the country and governing the economy and said to you know, the dictator, Pinochet, we love you, we're grateful to you, but it's time for you to go and for your men to withdraw to the barracks. We're going to take over. And that's when a new constitution was put to the vote and won. Um, there's no one who can do this in Egypt. Uh, all these potential partners with whom a wider alliance could have been formed, a wider social and political alliance could have been formed, have been marginalized, weakened, cowed. And that includes you know, big business, it includes uh, small business, which barely, barely exists. And of course, you know, all manner of political parties. Um, let's, let's move on to some of the other questions. Yeah, um, I was going to go back to Sarah Tonzi, who was uh, got in there very early. So mm. I think it's only fair to take her question first. Okay. Um, it is uh, how far could we argue, like Anwar Abdul Malik did before, that a deconstruction of the old bourgeoisie is part of the current process that you referred to as shift in social alliances. Given the examples that you referred to with regards to housing projects, could we still look at the state as dealing with private versus public space or national versus private, as I believe a clear distinction is developing? Right. A difficult question really for me to answer because it involves quite a few different uh, elements to it. Um, so I'm going to have to tackle just a little bit of that. And I think I'll bring in, there's a question later on I see about the housing shortage from Jose Maria Hernandez and what the government aims at in, in investing in housing, in housing, et cetera, which comes, comes at it from a more uh, economic uh, perspective as, as far as I can make out. Um, and just to check if there's anything else I can touch on here, there's also a question on upward social mobility. So I'll try and bring these, these three together. Um, the, I think there's, part, there's a mix of things. Partly there's this, uh, there's, there's a dream, there's an ambition uh, on the part of CC and senior state officials, whether they're in the military, in the judiciary, in, in the police, and in other sectors, uh, but all here I'm emphasizing state-based uh, individuals who aspire to become part of the kind of upper middle class that they see in the Gulf, living in these luxury compounds and steel and glass buildings, which are you know, monitored for energy efficiency and uh, protected by the police. I mean, this is very much how these things are uh, portrayed in, you know, if you look at some of the artist, uh, artistic imagery that is, uh, you know, artists' impressions and so on of the new, the, the future new capital or some of the future new cities on, on the Mediterranean or Red Sea shore, you'll see that there's a very clear upper middle class aspiration there. And it's the Gulf that's the model here. And the pattern of investment by the state 
in major uh, uh, real estate construction is modeled directly, I believe, on Dubai or Naom City in Saudi Arabia. The difference being, of course, that Egypt doesn't have the capital to draw on for these investments and therefore has to draw on a lot of borrowing because domestic savings and domestic surplus are very low. Um, now, what, what, this, what I'm saying in a way is that this boils down to a bit of a Ponzi scheme, I mean, bluntly, where the state is taking a gamble that by investing in real estate, talking it up and finding enough people to buy these luxury apartments or lower sort of middle middle class apartments like in New Mansoura city in the Nile Delta, which is, which is meant to cater to the more sort of middle middle class, um, that as long as they can find enough people to buy, then they're recouping their money and making a net profit. That'll work as long as you know, there are enough customers. But the, the rate of investment is extremely high. Prime Minister Madbouli just announced that they're planning to build another 30 cities of this type in coming years uh, with the aim, I think it was, of housing 30 million more Egyptians. These are highly ambitious aims. The previous 24 cities that were built until between 1977 and 2014, I think, uh, attracted a fraction of their target population. So there is a high risk strategy here, very high risk. Um, now, the let me see how I'm doing in terms of answering your questions. Um, um, there are now rather a lot of questions, so it's it's going to be very. I, um, I thought uh, Harry, jump in. Yeah, I've I've been doing a bit of background work while you've been speaking. So Thank you. there's two questions: one from Raiden and. Uh, Safa, I think, which is, uh, I think, near the end, which basically get at um, the kind of geopolitical alliances of Egypt in the region. And so I'm just going to ask you these two together. So Radance is what are the motivations behind the uptick of, in GCC financing for infrastructure product, projects? For instance, Saudi Arabia shows over two billion US dollars in Sinai infrastructure development in the last five years. Is this tied to security in the region or other reasons? And then Safa um, says, similarly, could you please comment on how Egypt's geopolitical alliances in the region and beyond figure into the picture, particularly where partnerships are configured around increased militarization and securitization of economic development? And how do you view China's role in this regard? Um, and how significant is Chinese OFDI? Right, thanks. Okay, so I've been also scrolling through to remind myself of the questions I was trying to answer earlier, and I just wanted to add a little bit on the sort of the class alliance or whatever you want to call it. And I see a question from Bruce Stanley about, you know, incarceration, carceral policies, etc. And I do want to emphasize that um, there, there's a paradox here that on the one hand, there there is this sort of uh, targeting of the upper tier of Egyptian society, because in most cases, we're not talking about South Asian retirees investing in Dubai. Most of the people investing in real estate in Egypt are Egyptians, albeit in many cases, uh, people working outside Egypt. Um, so there, there is a sort of clear class bias, if you like, here, and where there is a sort of um, uh, an, an approach to the poor, which involves charity handouts and food boxes and so on that the military distribute and state-funded uh, inoculation schemes and so on, but where there's a very strong corporatist perception that there's 
the poor or the workers who we need to work in the Suez Canal zone for whom we'll build working class dormitory cities like the new Ismailia city. Uh, but then we've got the upper bourgeoisie that's going to go live outside of Cairo and all the congestion and noise and bustle of Cairo and we'll put it in a nice huge gated new administrative capital. Um, so there's, there are very clear notions of class here that underpin economic policy, investment policy, and as Bruce's question suggests, where uh, state power in the form of the coercive agencies, especially the police, internal security, but also the military here and there, um, back all this up, of course, by policing the poor or by protecting these new gated compounds. But again, what's most noticeable for me is that even these upper-class uh, targets, they're, they're seen as people with money who, whose money the president wants. And he wants it invested in state-owned companies. He wants it invested in state-controlled or state-designed real estate. He's not proposing a class alliance with a distinct class of, say, the upper-middle class or the business class or in the industrial class. There's no such thing. I mean, not that there's no bourgeoisie, but in answer to that very first question about the old bourgeoisie, um, the, old, the, the, the new class that came after 1952 was this huge middle class based in the public, se public sector. That is being shrunken and squeezed hard as it is across the Arab region. The, the, the replacement is not some noticeable new bourgeois capitalist class. It is people in, holding state power who are in ever narrower social and political alliances. And that applies in Algeria or in, in Egypt and in, in other places. Now, to come back to the question about uh, the foreign alliances, the, the, the reasoning behind foreign investments, Saudi, Gulf, China, et cetera, um, there's a mix. Um, the GCC countries, especially Saudi Arabia and the Emirates, of course, invested something like $25 billion worth of credit assistance, oil credit, et cetera, or oil assistance in Egypt in the first year and a half after the military took power in 2013. That was entirely a political investment uh, to secure the new regime. And since then, that level of uh, assistance has tailed right off um, and has shifted towards investment. The investment is more of a mixture. There are, there are Gulf investments in, say, land reclamation projects, some many of which are run by the military, where uh, Gulf companies or rich individuals will uh, gain license to exploit agricultural land and sometimes use it for that or for other purposes. But some of that investment is still ultimately political. It's a support for the investment policies of the CC administration and Saudi investment part of which, not all of which has gone to the Sinai Peninsula, is to support the military's priorities in particular because the military regards Sinai as a national security priority and want to prioritize uh, social economic development there. Of course, according to their understanding, and not in consultation necessarily with the local community of Sinai, but rather this idea of colonizing, so, no, I, for, 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 I withdraw that term, but, but of moving more mainland Egyptians into the peninsula to you know, populate these massive new projects. Um, what I do want to say about foreign investment, whether in the Suez Canal Zone, which is significant, or elsewhere, and this touches on some of the other questions about foreign direct investment, you should really go, of course, to World Bank reports, um, 
uh, and and others on the what's happening in investment. I'm, I'm, I don't follow this in great detail, but the World Bank has been saying for at least the last couple of years that foreign direct investment is sluggish. In fact, uh, it's said that over the last three years, net investment has declined. Most of the investment, and this is the latest World Bank report that came out in December, showed that by far the majority of foreign direct investment, I think it was three quarters of the total, goes into the energy sector specifically, with much, much, much smaller amounts going to telecommunications or real estate. In other words, foreign direct investment is not going into these sectors of the economy where 99% of Egyptians work. And that's very telling, very worrying. And what's worrying, of course, as I said earlier, is that there are extremely low rates of domestic investment in the economy and of private domestic investment. And that is also a very revealing statistic. Um, the other, what, leaves, what that leaves us with is that many foreign companies, um, I can think of a number of British and American companies that are nervous about going into Egypt, partly because of human rights and other concerns with being you know, challenged for investing in, in Egypt, but also because Egypt, as uh, a British government report I cite in my, uh, my report on the military economy that came out a year ago, uh, there was a, a British uh, government uh, report for investors talking about Egypt and the climate there, et cetera. And one of the points made there, and this is, you know, this is commonly reiterated elsewhere, is that there's poor enforcement of contract in Egypt because of all sorts of reasons to do with you know, predominant state control, military involvement, et cetera. But what's interesting is that although some companies are worried about this and therefore don't go into the heartland of the economy, as it were, there are quite a few companies, Russian, Chinese, and in some cases, Emirati, which are happier to go into these new industrial and transport hubs or zones that are being built up along the Suez Canal by the military um, because they know that what protects their investment is not the legal framework because so far it doesn't exist. In Egypt, any business, foreign or domestic, going into business with a military agency cannot take that military agency to court over any business dispute. And this is a huge impediment to the investment of many other companies. Certain companies whose governments have very good political relations with the Egyptian government, uh, not just Russia and China, I mean, this could be Italy, for instance, feel much more confident going in because they feel that their governments will help, help them in the event of any disputes. And they have, you know, they feel that so long as they continue investing in Egypt, the government or the military will continue to uh, deal with them uh, more equitably. So there are, there are, you know, I'm, I'm raising a whole host of issues here, but I think that there's, there's these multiple levels of what brings these different kinds of investors to Egypt. Ultimately, Chinese or Russians or Italians and others go there because they see an investment opportunity. What would be a very interesting question, of course, is to compare net direct investment in uh, immovable assets, in other words, in infrastructure or assets that can't be removed from Egypt overnight versus hot money flows of money going into government certificates and bonds or the Egyptian stock exchange, where billions will move in and then billions will move out because they're pursuing e Egypt's other income generating scheme, which is to offer very high rates of something like 13% or more on, on hot money investment. 
which brings, I mean, since I'm based in Lebanon most of the time, this makes me think of the Lebanese model because this is how Lebanon operated for, for many years. Egypt is able to manage the balance, to, to, to balance these things better. But ultimately, this is all based not on a thriving, diversifying economy with a growing huge mass of small and medium businesses on top of which sits a much smaller number of big businesses. Rather, according to the statistics we have, and I cite here work by economists such as Ishaq Diwan and his colleagues, um, Adil Malik at Oxford, uh, Ferdinand Eibel at, at the LSE, um, that something like 20,000 only out of 2 million non-farm enterprises in Egypt, this is from a few years ago, only 20,000 are regarded as large or medium businesses, 1%. This describes a private sector that contains something like 90% tiny businesses, you know, a falafel stand or a news kiosk. There's something fundamentally wrong with an economy that, you know, is structured like that. And it shows why the investment isn't going into this part of the economy at all. Okay, um, thank you very much. So, um, just I just wanted to tag on to that um, Michael Mason's question. I'm going to um, move on as well, but um, he just wants to know if you know if there's been any any change under CC in the nature and scope of UK investment in Egypt, and if the UK government has changed its support for such investment. But then after you've maybe addressed that, I've, maybe we could move on to. Um, I've kind of I've uh, put together Ahmed's, Banu's and slightly Brad's question, which is more talking about the kind of middle class constituency and also the kind of and, and talking about. So Ahmed asks, um, do you expect the middle tree will have power for the next few decades since the middle class is disappearing? And what does it take to change to democracy? Small question. Um, and then uh, Banu similarly. Similar, on a similar line, asks about whether CC's privatization efforts are strengthening Egypt's middle class and if Egypt can be like Tunisia in that sense. And, and finally, Brad, again, a little bit similar, is, is talking about how the kind of broad low income class, whether they kind of remain capable of kind of revolving again to 2011 um, and the kinds of, um, you know, uh, social imbalances that were opened up then. Uh, and kind of again, kind of more looking more long term. How can, how long can this kind of regime last? Again, difficult question to know. I know. Um, okay. Um, I also do want to pick up on. I can put it to leave it to later. There's a very direct question that I anticipated of whether the term state capitalism has any analytical. Yeah, I was going to do that. I, I was going right. to do that. At I the end. Agreed on that. I like it. Um, it's a very good question. Um, but, but moving back, and I also see a question uh, from Nazli T on um, the, you know, the demerging of iron and steel company and some of the other public sector company privatization or sell-off, et cetera, plans that are underway. Um, I'd like to also come, come to that. Now, on the UK investment question, I, I just don't have the detail, and I, I think Michael Manson would be in a better position than me to, to address that. Um, I think the UK government is very keen to do business with the, with Egypt, although Egypt per se doesn't represent actually a major market, uh, which is interesting. And it's striking how uh, after all these years, Egypt remains far less globalized uh, in some key aspects than many other comparable economies. Um, and that's partly a reason why it doesn't offer that kind of market space. And there was also 
a very big emphasis underway over the last two years, driven by CC to so-called localize or resettle technology and manufacturing and production in Egypt. In other words, produce Egyptian, buy Egyptian, don't import. Um, I don't think this is a winning strategy for all sorts of reasons, one of which is there seems to be a lot of lip service to the slogan, but no real realization of what that actually requires in terms of research and development, different kinds of investment strategies, different kinds of relations with other market actors and so on. Um, so I can't say more about the UK per se, except that I think that the UK government is keen on uh, building up the investment portfolio. But I think there is a recognition, at least more privately, of some of the problems facing British companies in Egypt. And it's one thing if you're operating in the energy sector where what's going on is very different. There are different sort of relationships. Uh, but finding people who invest in a factory somewhere in Egypt, whatever it produces, are they even given the chance, for instance, to invest in, let's say, um, downstream activities in marble and granite or in heavy metals or whatever? I would say probably not when you consider that some of the big losers in the cement sector have been foreign companies, which have seen massive losses and competition, direct competition for share by military-owned companies whose, economic, whose economics, whose viability is very much in question and yet can be kept afloat because they sell to themselves for military-managed, public, publicly-funded infrastructure and housing projects. So they produce and sell to themselves and cut out a lot of the private, public, foreign and Egyptian companies. So, you know, I, I doubt many companies want to jump into that kind of sector. Uh, incidentally, non-tariff barriers in Egypt are, at the latest reading, second highest in the world. There's a huge amount of protection in Egypt, which creates uh, a lot of incentives for local producers. Uh, ironically, no longer so much for private participants as for public and military ones, but not for foreign ones in, in those sectors, at least. Um, moving, moving focus entirely to the politics of this, whether there's, you know, uh, the prospect of any kind of uprising or dissent, what, what scope for democracy. I think the regime is stable. Uh, macroeconomic indicators are positive, even strong. Uh, of course, Egypt suffered like everyone else under COVID, but due to a combination of factors, including $12 billion in assistance from the IMF between 2016 and 2019, another $8 billion from IMF approved last year, um, continued remittances from expatriate Egyptians, which are now, I believe, the largest single source of foreign currency in Egypt, but also that the government didn't actually spend a whole lot on relief measures inside the country. For all these different reasons, Egypt has managed to keep above zero in terms of growth rates, well above zero, and has the prospect of rebounding. But that's, again, the macroeconomic level. And when you look into what the real economy does in each sector, the picture is much more worrying. Now, as long as the macroeconomic indicators are good, Egypt can continue to attract capital investment of one kind or the other, either in the energy sector, a little bit in real estate, telecommunications, but also in, you know, in financial instruments. And as long as investors of whatever nationality believe that both the presidency, Sisi, are going to, are determined politically to maintain this course, this economic and financial course, 
And as long as they perceive that Western governments, the US, the EU, the British government, the World Bank, IMF, are committed to maintaining, to keeping Egypt uh, on, a, on a positive course, then I think it, private investors will see this always as a good risk. Um, and that does mean that Egypt will be able to manage its debt, which has grown immensely in the last few years, but still within manageable proportions, as long as, they, as long as there is a continued inflow of capital. If there is anything that genuinely disrupts that inflow, a, you know, a, a new kind of pandemic that totally you know, sets global economic recovery on, on a back foot, um, anything within the inside Egypt that really impedes uh, or that, that prompts outsiders to reduce their inflows of capital, any of that could tip over this, this uh, the, the sort of house of cards, the financial house of cards that has been constructed there and the whole sort of housing investment uh, logic. Now, my, my reading would be eight, 10 years minimum and very likely more. Uh, for all these different reasons. Um, the, um, the, the last thing I wanted to come to there uh, is that um, what's going on in the public sector, I think is really interesting. It ties in with what I said earlier about shrinking the public sector wage bill. CC has done something that is striking and I would say on balance is from an economic point of view, sensible and I guess welcome for many uh, not necessarily in this exact way he's done it, but is not just shrinking the public sector wage bill as a share of GDP, but also in streamlining public expenditure generally, he has tried to cut down the level of corruption and waste and mismanagement in public sector contrasts, partly by bringing in the military and then by teaming the military with the administrative control authority or monitoring authority, the Hayat as a means of trying to curb, at least curb the extent of corruption and mismanagement and waste, but also in passing legislation quite recently that requires all public sector companies to um, stop being loss makers and threatening the ones that don't sort out their books and move from loss making into profit making with closure. Uh, it's striking that the state, the government, which has been talking about selling off part or all of 23 public sector companies since 2018, has only in fact managed to sell a 5% share in the Eastern Tobacco Company since then. That's not impressive. And now there's new talk about uh, not selling off and instead restructuring, merging, breaking apart public sector companies to make them more profitable. To my mind, I mean, these may be logical from a sort of market perspective, and they may be perfectly sensible responses, but they are responses that keep ownership in state hands and don't yet represent significant privatization. Not that I'm advocating for privatization, but I'm pointing out that this government under this administration uh, is still trying to hold on to what it can in terms of overall over ownership and control of setting policy in all these fields, while reducing its financial ex uh, exposure and vulnerability by having inflated labor forces and inefficient, uh, uh, inefficient companies. So there's a very interesting streamlining effort that I think is, let's say, commendable in, insofar as 
It does seek to reduce waste and inefficiency, but it takes place again in a context where there is no real debate across government, let alone outside of government, with anyone else who might have a view on how best to do this in ways that provide social protection, inclusion, participation, and offer some real means for the poor to you know, increase their per capita income and for, uh, for small businesses to start growing and for mid medium-sized businesses, which is very interesting. Uh, one of the most telling problems in Egypt of, of what's going on is that there's very little incentive for growth and little evidence of major investment and growth diversification by medium-sized companies in Egypt. This tells you that the people who are stuck in between um, who, who are able to do more in the economy, but hold back from doing more because they know that they need political connections and protection and to offer a share to powerful political and institutional figures, including the military and others, in return for being given the chance to expand their businesses. So this economy remains trapped within the framework that is regulated through regulatory mechanisms the public procurement law that Egypt has promised the IMF since 2016 would be standardized and unified and made far more transparent and accessible. None of this has happened yet. And so this is, this is still an economy that is very much controlled by the state, even though the state doesn't actually own in the strict sense more than say 25 to 30% of economic assets and of share of production of goods and services. So, uh, I'm conscious of the time. Uh, so I think we're going to take one more question and then end it there. Um, I'm very sorry to people that we don't get to answer their questions. Um, uh, there was really a lot of super interesting questions that I think uh, that you might, might like to take away and think about. But I'm conscious, firstly, because Nasli asked the question about the, um, the emerging of the state-owned iron and steel company and the backlash in response to this. And maybe you want to answer that in a few words. But then to move on, I think finally a nice question to end on is about the kind of concept of state capitalism as an analytical term and and whether this actually kind of represents a kind of uh, purposive strategy um, or whether it is just very kind of experimental basically and, and John Hamilton also asks this kind of similar question about that so maybe that's a nice way to end. Thanks Harry yes um, I'll wrap up um, and I do see some other questions that touch on a little bit of this I've, I actually addressed I mean as well as I can the question about the iron and steel company as part of my broader answer about how the government is approaching public sector companies that have been underperforming and incurring major losses. So I, I, I won't say more about that here. Um, on the question of whether there's a strategy, uh, and I also see a question right at the end here from Hamad Samhuri about whether the CC administration might seriously rethink and change course. I mean, these I think dovetail very nicely I've said in this paper and elsewhere that, A, I don't think uh, Sisi has a clear economic strategy as such. He has what every president before him, well, certainly with Nasser uh, and, and, and with him, Sisi has, which is they've got the idea that they need capital. And so they go around looking for any way of generating capital. And this means creating strategic alliances outside the country with the Soviet Union or the United States or with China or with Russia, whoever, in order to bring in capital in one form or another. It's about increasing revenue. And in CC's case, what's interesting is this is by streamlining public sector expenditure, 
but also by investing in a sector he thinks is a money spinner, which is real estate. So this is all about generating capital or saving capital, finding capital in any way possible. What's not, what's missing there is an idea of how to transfer that capital to parts of the economy that desperately need the investment. And here's where we look at, okay, so manufacturing, um, high value added areas uh, involving, of course, technology intensive activities and so on. And in all these areas, there's a lot of lip service about it, a lot of talk of technology transfer and the highest international standards. But in practice, there's almost no change in how the state approaches these things, nor in its willingness to allow other actors free reign to develop and expand and diversify and take the lead. So A, there's no real strategy. B, this is state capitalism in answer to that very first question in the sense simply that I'm trying to describe something in which the state continues to be the critically politically important actor, which may not own everything, may not have a clear strategy, may not know, know what to do with all the money it does manage to generate, and maybe wastes it on projects like the second Suez Canal or the Suez Canal expansion, which was conducted on very questionable uh, assumptions of feasibility, the new administrative capital, which Egypt doesn't really need right now to be spending money on. Um, so state capitalism is in a way, whatever you choose it to mean, we're, here I'm talking about state actors who have overwhelming power to take decisions without being answerable to any authority, either within the state or outside the state for their choices and decisions. Uh, who don't approach this in a way that actually creates a broader range of public and private actors. And by private here, I include civil society, labor unions, business associations. I'm not simply referring to public-private business, um, although that too is a highly problematic area in Egypt. And what I'm laying out in a way is an answer to Mohamed Samhuri's question, which is if the CC administration were to rethink, these are all areas it should rethink. Um, and I'll, I'll stop on the final note that one area where any president in Egypt might try to start making a change, so in a, in a way that avoids coming up against the major areas of resistance that would face them in other parts of the economy, I would, I would argue that local government in Egypt, which is entirely top appointed top down from the president and prime minister downwards, which is a highly you know, autocratic structure in itself. This is an area where I think um, the CC administration could try to democratize that process, making it a bottom-up structure of governance, providing therefore local actors more means to decide on their own investment priorities, how to use government resources or opportunities that are offered to them and to set priorities and to hold their own officials to account. That would give a very good signal to Egyptians to, would give big scope to small entrepreneurs to, to, to invest and grow. There are all sorts of things I think we could think of, all of us. Um, I don't see this administration shifting tack, which is forever since Abdel Nasser onwards, the political goal of building a, a sort of a new socio-political alliance and then maintaining the regime on that basis is, is the one true goal of this administration. And it doesn't understand that it needs social allies in order to do this, unlike, let's say, the military in Chile or Brazil or in Turkey. And I'll stop there. 
Okay. Thank you. Thank you so much, Yazid. I think that was really a fascinating seminar and I think, um, yeah, opened up a lot, a lot of important questions that um, hopefully you've, you've answered some of them. And um, yeah, all that's left for me to say is thank you very much to everybody for coming um, and asking really incredible questions as well. And, and thank you to Yazid as well for, for taking the time to talk to us as well. Um, so we'll, we will see you next time. Thank you very much.